If you want to tango in Buenos Aires, you need to know the steps that come before the dance at a neighborhood milanga. You've got this gorgeous woman sitting at a table, and there's your tango dancer on the floor, and he wants to dance with this beautiful woman. But he's got to make the eye contact, and she has to respond accordingly with the eyes, and then they get up and do the dance. Coming up, an American who spent a dozen years living in Buenos Aires shows us the ropes of the Argentine capital. Plus, guides from Madrid tell us how to roll like a Spaniard, where you work to live, not the other way around. You know, Spanish people can be very efficient, but sometimes they choose not to be. We'll learn how taking time for plenty of relaxing breaks during the day and why they don't even think about dinner until well after dark is all part of the natural rhythm of life in the hot climate of Spain. And we are not lazy people, it's just we do things in a different way, nothing more than that. Viva la vida! It's Travel with Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll find out why Buenos Aires is one of the world's most popular cities to visit. And we'll check in with listeners who'd like to talk a little more about things they've heard on the show in recent months. Let's open the hour as we try to get in sync with the distinctly Spanish way of enjoying life. For instance, the hours people keep in Spain can be a real surprise for visitors, who might be accustomed to eating an early supper and going to bed by 10. For an insider's look at living like a Spaniard, we're joined now by two guides from Madrid, Amanda Budinger and Federico Garcia Barroso. Amigos, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Federico, you live in Madrid. Mm-hmm. You, uh, To me, you are sort of a quintessential Spaniard. What is it about Spanish character that a traveler needs to understand to kind of be able to go with the flow in Spain instead of being struggling with it? Well, uh, there are so many, so many stereotypes, but I, I really think that one of the ones which is real is that we work to leave. We don't actually leave to work, you know. It's just something that we try somehow. We try to enjoy life. So when you look at an American, you see somebody who's inclined mm-hmm. to have too much, trying to do too much, going too fast, uh, living to work, and, and you exactly, work to yes. live. Well, what about that? You've got the famous siesta time. Uh, everybody's out strolling in the evening. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does that bring your life more joy? Well, this is uh, still nowadays is actually a kind of a debate, you know, because nowadays we are really wondering about that. Is it really, really a good quality of life for the Spaniards? Because we have a long lunch and never-ending siesta. And, you know, the reason for that is because the sun is shining for so many hours that we mm-hmm. obviously do things in a different way that Scandinavians do. And that consequently, that brings a kind of bad reputation as lazy people. And we are not lazy people. It's just that we do things in a different way, nothing more than that. So it's driven by the power of the sun, really. During the middle of the day, you're just Absolutely. smart to lay low, get in the shade, mm-hmm. take a break, take a nap, and be out and be industrious when the sun goes down. Exactly. All right. Amanda Buttinger, you've been in Spain for 15 years or so, mm-hmm. uh, but you're from Maryland. Yes. And yes. you moved to Spain to study. Uh, why'd you end up staying? Did you f- fall in love with a Spaniard or something? No, I fell in love with Spain. I fell in love with Spain, and I had a couple of Spanish boyfriends, and every time I broke up with them, my mother said, are you ready to come home? And I said, no, I'm in love with Spain. Really? Yeah, a Maryland in Madrid. Girl. In yeah. love with, what is it about Spain that, that you would find uh, it's where you want to live your life out? Well, number one, Madrid is a very, it's a very easy city to live in and an easy place to be. And, and the people are just very generous and welcoming. And uh, the language was, for me was a very important thing to, to be a part of and, and use every day. And the markets and the food. and So you like the tempo of life? Yes, yes, yes. Federico was mentioning how, you know, you can live to work or work to live. Do you find that there, there's a different uh, priorities in Spain or is that just a... a oh, no, a I agree. Cliche? I agree with Fede. A lot of times also, you know, Spanish people can be very efficient, but sometimes they choose not to be. They like their coffee break at 10 o'clock in the so morning. So they know maybe. it's inefficient. They oh, just, this oh, is the way yes, we do it. We're yes. not, it's not you bottom know, this, line. Everything's not the exactly, bottom line. Exactly. You earn your living taking American groups around Spain. Mm-hmm. Uh, what advice would you give to an American to appreciate Spain as you have and as you fell in love with it? I mean, some people can come to Spain and come away just with frustration. Other people can come away uh, really inspired by the Spanish I think go with the flow and really observe the situation Mm because Spanish people in the north are very different from Spanish people in the south and Mm -hmm. Spanish people in the center um, in terms of how they interact with you in the restaurant and uh, observe, observe, sit back and watch the people a little bit. How do people order? What's an example? Let's say you're in Madrid. In Madrid, people, you don't say please and thank you and may I, you know, if you learn your Spanish phrase book and you're saying seven different words for that you want a coffee with milk, what you need to do is just say a coffee with milk. Okay. M- maybe add a plea, mm-hmm. por favor. Right. Un café now con you leche. go down to Andalusia in the south, how is yeah. it different? 
Um, they're a little bit, you know, they use more words and you might be using a little bit more of the please and thank yous down there. Might take a little longer to get the bill also. And something else, you see, most of the cases when we talk about Americans and Canadians who come for the first time to Spain, they may think that they visit a country quite similar to Mexico, Mm -hmm. Argentina, Costa Rica, you know, because of linguistic and and cultural reasons. And then suddenly they discover that we are closer to France and Italy in many other ways. Mm -hmm. And that is quite seductive. That is actually a a nice surprise for most of them. You know, that is interesting because I bet the average American going to Spain is looking for something related to Mexico. Mm -hmm. And you've got the language in common, Mm -hmm. but a tortilla in Mexico is different (laughs) than a tortilla in Spain. Very much. (laughs) Now, Federico, when uh, Portuguese or French look at Spaniards... Mm. What is their impression of Spaniards? <laughs> I, I still remember the last time I was in Lisbon, I could see a really elaborated uh, graffiti located on the walls of the fortress on the top of Alfama. And it was just in a very immaculate way, he said, Hey, tourists, shh, respect our silence. If you want to speak loud, go to Spain. <laughs> is that right? So Spain's famous for being up, uh, raucous. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Amanda, you, you're an American who's lived in Spain for 15 years. How do you think the French and the, and the Portuguese look at Spain? I agree. I think loud and in a conversation, the Spanish people always want to win. The three of us are talking, you know, there's no pause waiting for the other person to finish their thought. It's, oh, I, can so I speak louder than you? you got to get in there. you got to be yes, aggressive. And yes. I find the same thing with ordering when I'm in a tapas bar. Oh, yes. You don't wait yes, for your yes. turn. you got to bully up to that bar and let it be known. I want my uh, whatever. It becomes a challenge. <laughs> Federico, what are the sports passions in Spain? Football. European football, basically. So soccer. Yeah. Soccer, exactly. Yeah. What you call soccer, exactly. Uh, I'm not much into that, but I, even if my even if I tell you my father is a f- soccer trainer, you know, but that is that is a Spanish passion. A Spanish and when you go to the, the soccer stadium, what's the experience like? What do you eat? What do you? How do you dress? Uh, well, you it's actually quite um, casual. You know, people go in a very uh, friendly way, and it's, it's becoming quite common. You know, to take any bocadillo, a Spanish sandwich, you know, mm-hmm. and just enjoy your sandwich just in the middle of the game, you know, people start eating the sandwich and a nice drink, and that's it. And I have to say, I've been in those two big, big stadiums in Real Madrid, in Madrid, and the, the Camp Nou in Barcelona, the Barca, and they are actually temples of soccer. And even if you don't really like very much soccer, just go and feel the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. That's you know, you know when I was working on our guidebook in Madrid, I mean, the local guides consider this soccer stadium one of the great sites mm-hmm. of Madrid. You go out there and you make a pilgrimage out there if you're a, if you're a soccer fan. Our guests, Federico Garcia Barroso and Amanda Budinger, are professional tour guides from Madrid, as we discover the uniquely Spanish ways to enjoy life, like they do in Spain right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Amanda, I was in Spain, and it occurred to me, you've got this invasion of vast American food chains and so on, and there's almost a reaction against that, and the local sandwich shop would say, you know, this is the Spanish thing to eat. How do Spaniards feel about the invasion um, of American fast food, or do they do they react to their own fast food instead? Well, I live in a pretty residential neighborhood, and the Burger King line is quite long on the weekends, and they're all Spanish people. So I think, I mean, the the Spanish people do use the um, eat at the American fast food chains, and their Spanish fast food chains too. They've of got course, that. and then you go to the city center, and you find how those foreigners go to those Spanish exactly <laughs> places. Well, the, so the the foreigners are saying, "I want to go to a local place," and the local yeah. people are hanging out at Burger King. Yeah. <laughs> That is kind of. But there is there is a relatively new Spanish fast food chain called Cien Montaditos, and it's uh, basically Spanish tapas for very cheap, Mm -hmm. and it's very very popular with the Spanish people. Would some Spaniards think I'm tired of being invaded by American fast food? Let's go to the Cien Montaditos. Yeah. So there would be that that sentiment. What's for breakfast, Amanda? People don't have big breakfasts. Coffee with milk, hot chocolate, and a roll, a piece of toast, and then again they have that. Mid mid morning break, so ten thirty, ten thirty, eleven. So you still mm-hmm. are enjoying your dinner. Even you well, yeah, probably. exactly. And Federico, when you were a child, what what are your memories of breakfast? Actually, something quite quite easy as all the things that we have, but especially chocolate, Spanish chocolate, yeah. hot chocolate, hot with, chocolate with churros. With those churros, with describe churros. this because this is one of my mm. favorite experiences. I'm not really into donuts mm. and and, and mm-hmm. sugary drinks, but mm. when I'm in Spain. Chocolate con churros. churros. Exactly. It's it's actually uh, something quite Spanish. And I will say, specifically Madrilenian, you find that actually in Madrid City, some of the best chocolaterias, where you order for a very cheap price that cup of hot chocolate, very dense, all right? And then you dip in that chocolate. Those churros are the thin ones. 
esporas are those ones that are a little bit thicker. And these right. are cigar-shaped donuts, kind exactly. of. Exactly. And, and very greasy, and you put very it in the sweet <laughs> chocolate. And this exactly. is where you, this is sort of the the nail in the coffin after you've been drinking late at <laughs> night, and you go and have a chocolate <laughs> con churros at three in the morning after the <laughs> disco right. is uh, done or something. That, that place is open 24 hours. Mm-hmm. That is... Mm-hmm. Uh, what what is, is the place? I know the place. What's San it Gines. San, San Gines. Gines, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Amanda, when you think about... Uh, Spain and, and all the diversity in Spain, what part of Spain would be considered the most quintessentially Spanish from a language and a cultural I think, point I of think view? Salamanca has a, a great academic history Absolutely. and, and wonderful language and Absolutely. a lot of people go there for the real the real Spanish experience to study and to live. We actually have a proverb in the Spanish language that says Quien quiera aprender que vaya a Salamanca. If you want to learn something, you have to go to Salamanca. Salamanca is a place where supposedly in those Renaissance times, you know, cultivated people were there learning the immaculate Castilian language, you mm. know, and many more things. And then we find those universities now. It's still nowadays is a university town. So Salamanca is like one hour northwest from Madrid or so? Mm. Two and a half. Yeah, two and a half, hours. Two and a half to three. three. I was going to think Andalusia because many of our cliches of Spain, flamenco and all that, are down in Andalusia in mm. the south. But this is interesting here. Two Spaniards explain that Salamanca is the pure Spain, Castile is the pure language, mm-hmm. and Salamanca is the Oxford or the Cambridge mm-hmm. of Spain, the historic university town. Exactly. And it's got, I think, the greatest square in all of Spain, the Plaza Mayor. Oh, it's a beautiful square. Totally. That's where you need to just sit down and just, have your coffee for three hours or mm-hmm. your glass of wine for three hours. I agree. Let's finish this discussion about being a Spaniard by sitting on the square, the Plaza Mayor, the greatest square in Spain, in Salamanca. What would you do? What would you see? First, Amanda, and then Federico. Sitting back and watching the people, but also watching the colors on the the, the stone of the architecture. It's just a really, really special color stone, and it changes throughout the day. And you can watch that as you're watching the people change in their daily routines, walking through the square, going to work, sitting down themselves, waiting for the musicians, the tunas, to come out and play their song. And so the troubadours, the tuba bands, yes, these, yes. Uh, like a strolling... Uh, flirtatious mm-hmm. men's mm-hmm. choirs mm-hmm. and with their tambourines and their guitars. And their capes. And, and their capes. So yeah, it's so yeah. uh, genteel and exactly. uh, chivalric. And then surrounding you are statues in all the niches of all the great Spaniards. Federico, continue our, our, our magic moment in the main square as the sun's going down in Salamanca. Yes, actually, Madrid and Salamanca, if you enjoy architecture, they are offering to you the best, undoubtedly the best examples of Castilian civil architecture. But it's much more than that. It's just to sit down there and enjoy the atmosphere. So you're going to pay extra to sit at a table on the square, but it's not going to be. It's not going to break the bank, and it's, no, it's no. one of the best deals around. You'll pay totally. double compared to <laughs> sitting at the bar. But don't <laughs> shy away from that. It's a good thing. Pay the most. Sit and you don't. On the you don't have to. You know, the, in America, oh, they bring the check before you've actually put the fork down on the table yeah. to finish your meal. And there, you can just sit and linger, and, and nobody will come and bother you. Beautiful. Amanda Buttinger and Federico Garcia Barroso. Gracias. Gracias. Okay, well, Spain is a lot different from what you can expect to find in, say, Mexico or Cuba. There's at least one popular corner of Latin America that feels a lot like Europe. Coming up next, we'll take your calls at 877-333-RIC as we explore Buenos Aires together on Travel with Rick Steves. It's the hometown of Pope Francis. And even with some of the worst inflation rates in the hemisphere and an iffy exchange rate for foreign investors, Buenos Aires remains one of the world's favorite cities to visit. As one of the largest metropolitan areas in our hemisphere, Buenos Aires actually attracts more tourists than any other city in South America. 
Robert Wright is an American-born tour guide who loves Argentina so much, he's made it his adopted home now for more than a dozen years. He's also made a living guiding visitors around Buenos Aires. He joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves for a personal introduction to the highlights of his adopted hometown, the Argentine capital. Robert, welcome. Hi, Rick. Thanks for having me. So if somebody's thinking about Buenos Aires, how, how is it unique? What's the charm? Why would you spend uh, more than a decade? You've lived in a lot of different places. What kept you in, in Buenos Aires? Uh, Buenos Aires is so unique because you consider it with, a, as you mentioned, the population of 15 million people in just one city. You can imagine there's so much to see and so much to do, and every different part of the city has its unique own character. Uh, it's separated into 48 barrios, or neighborhoods, and each one really has a unique flavor. Yeah. 48. 48. So it's a collection of small towns, basically. Pretty much, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People say it is the Paris of South America, but what do local people think when they hear that? It's it's the most overused cliche in the travel industry. I don't think you could say anything that was more cliche. That's why whenever I read it in print or hear <laughs> someone say that, it just it makes me <laughs> tense up. Why do they I, say that? I mean, what is it about They it? say that because that actually was the image of Buenos Aires back in the 1920s or 1930s because most of the population of Argentina in general is Euro- of European descent. And so the architects and also the styles came over from Europe, and the city was built that way. The problem is... (laughs) That was 14 million people ago. (laughs) Yeah, that was about, like, you know, a century ago, so... When you think about a city of 15 million today, 60, 70 years ago, is probably a city of half a million. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, The actual city center of Buenos Aires, the city limits are 3 million people and the rest of its suburbs, but it's all fairly connected. And to be honest, uh, that three million of Buenos Aires has been three million since 1940. Well, it's, so it's not been grown, a, oh, it's really? not shrunk, it stays the same. So as a, as a tourist who's got limited time and so on, is it best just to consider the center and, and not get overwhelmed by the fact that it's one of these megapolises? Right, yeah. Uh, when most people come down, they come down for a few days and that's fine because you certainly don't need to see every neighborhood of Buenos Aires to get, a, to get a feel. Yeah. You'd have to spend a long time. In fact, my time, you know, I lived there for 13 years, I doubt... I saw every neighborhood <laughs> in 13 now, years. But in defense of this whole uh, the Paris of South America mm-hmm. thing, back in the 20s, it probably was the most cosmopolitan city in South America. Definitely. And uh, France was very in vogue. So it was ah, really, okay. really fashionable to speak French, to travel to the continent, and also keep in touch with old family members there. My understanding is Argentina is more European with its demographic makeup than any other country in South America. It is, and that's what makes Argentina so unique, especially in South America, because the population is 60% Italian descent, 30% Spanish, and then 10 from everywhere else, England, France, you name it. Now, you had a tour company in in Buenos Aires. Mm What was the fun of that? What did you enjoy most when you had visitors come into town? The best part is the fact that you can imagine all the changes that have happened in the last decade in Buenos Aires. And the thing is, there's lots of buildings that aren't there anymore that used to be there. Because really, Buenos Aires has not much of a... You think, it well, it was founded by the Spanish. There must be something colonial, but there's not. (laughs) So you have to really show people old photographs or uh, make them use their imaginations vividly in order to get a real good feel about how the city has has progressed over 500 years. Is it mostly the old part of town, quote, old? Would it be kind of Art Deco old or colonial it, old? It's really kind of turn of the century old. The so century. you've got Art Nouveau, Art Deco, that kind of thing, yeah. Now, what are some of the classic sites that you'd have to see or experience in Buenos Aires? A lot of people come and they want to see the city center because that's where the city was born and that's where some of the best almost colonial architecture. The little bits that have survived is there. So the, the Plaza oldest church de Mayo in town, area. the Plaza de Mayo. And then, uh, of course, Recoleta Cemetery, which is the biggest tourist attraction in the entire city. Yes, it's a the cemetery, cemetery. The biggest attraction? And it's the biggest tourist attraction. Why? Because there's no other cemetery in the world like it. It's only four city blocks big, yet it is packed and filled with so much history and tradition, and it's full of mausoleums that look like miniature houses for the rich wow. to, uh, yeah, well, it's where they're spending their eternity. So, uh, <laughs> and, and the most famous person who's buried there is, of course, Eva Perón, okay. which uh, most people know from the musical. I don't like to call her Evita, but Eva Perón was really uh, quite a, uh, an important figure in Argentine history. In your blog, you have a, a website. It's writeon.com.ar. That's it. W-R-I-G-H-T-O-N.com.ar for Argentina. Mm-hmm. You write that Baracus is big. It's bulky. 
and this southern barrio has a reputation for being bad, but it's one of my favorite areas in Buenos Aires. Tell us about Barracas and, and why you like it so much. The area of Barracas was the old industrial zone of mm-hmm. the city, and it was connected to the river that forms the southern border of Buenos Aires, which now you can imagine with the industry located there, the river is polluted beyond belief. In fact, I think it's one of the most polluted rivers in the entire world. They're working on cleaning it up slowly, mm-hmm. but it's going to take a very long time. But this uh, zone of Barracas is really uh, nice because being industrial, and since the industry moved away from the city a long time ago, it's sort of a time capsule. There's lots of old warehouses that they're turning into condos. There's lots of areas that's really off the beaten path. You won't run into another tourist there. But are and there creative little eateries and this kind of there thing? There are some good restaurants around, and they're actually doing some really popular artwork there because they're turning some of the small side streets. You can imagine an industrial zone has lots of ins and outs and little yeah. nooks and crannies. So some of those little dead-end streets are becoming really popular with artists. Uh, they cover the entire facade of every building with either creative paintings or tile work or whatever. And so it's a really it's an important art center for the city. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're traveling in the Southern Hemisphere down in Argentina, checking out Buenos Aires, and we're talking with Robert Wright, who's lived there for 13 years, used to be a tour guide down there. Robert, when you think about Buenos Aires, you always think about the tango scene. What's your best advice for Americans? that are, They're not going to sell their house and just embrace it hook, line, and sinker like uh, a lot of people do, but they just want to get a look at it. It's amazing how many Americans do go down to live the tango lifestyle. I know so it's, many people, they've had a divorce or they've had some sort of a terrible thing and they just want to start over. And that's they go the down there place. And perfect. it is a new beginning for them and they become almost uh, evangelical about the tango culture. Sure. But my life is not that chaotic. I just want to check it out. And what, most what, people <laughs> are not, no, no. Can I go to one of these uh, beautiful clubs and just check it out or or do you feel very gawky and like a voyeur i mean well you know there's there's two sides to the tango story because basically well it does take two to tango but uh the thing is is that with the big tourism boom that happened right after the devaluation in 2001 that's when buenos aires became very popular of course a lot of people you know knew about the tango uh lifestyle and also you know they wanted to learn how to dance and of course the tourism industry down there exploited it like you couldn't believe Mm. so there were schools that popped up, and then there's also the tacky touristy, you know, shows and that kind of thing. Yeah. So some of those are actually not bad. If you don't have much of a background in tango, those shows are okay. But if you want to learn how to dance, there's plenty of schools that take from beginners to intermediate to advanced learners. And if you're really, really a fanatic about it, there are the really late nightclubs. It's basically these are dance halls where the old-timers go, mm-hmm. and you've got to fit in. You've got to know all the clues and the signals, like yeah. the eyes... You've got to learn how to do all of that. And, and, you know, it's there's this whole code that goes on within the dance hall. Yeah, so talk about that, like, tango eyes. What's, what's some of the code? So basically you've got uh, this gorgeous woman sitting at a table, and there's your tango dancer on the floor, and he wants to dance with this beautiful woman. But he's got to make the eye contact, and she has to respond accordingly with the eyes. And then they get up and do the dance. Is it obvious if you know the lingo? If you or, know the, It's obvious, yeah, like, right. I should uh, somehow get move on from this person. Right, Because exactly. there's somebody over there that's making eyes with that's, me. That's it. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Tango. We're talking Argentina. We're talking Buenos Aires with Robert Wright. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Suzanne's on the line from Cranford, New Jersey. Suzanne, thanks for your call. Hi. I'd like to know if uh, Central... You were talking about um, Varacas before, but... Uh, centrally located safe neighborhoods for budget travelers who are visiting? Sure. um, There's actually plenty. Uh, From the city center all the way along the northern part of the river, there's a series of neighborhoods. Either uh, you can talk about Recoleta, which is where the cemetery is located, or Palermo or Belgrano. Those northern neighborhoods are all the main areas where all of the hotels or even the more affordable housing is, is, Hmm. um, is located. Also, one thing in Buenos Aires that has become very popular in the last decade is the uh, rental apartment scene. So places like Airbnb or independent ones that you can find online rent apartments for very affordable and reasonable rates. Okay. And is there a good time to visit off-season? I would say the best time to visit because summer is unpleasant at best because you you just have to imagine 90-degree temperatures with 90% humidity, and you Mm. really don't want to be out in that. So the best time to visit Buenos Aires in general is the springtime because in October, early November, is when the jacaranda trees are blooming. They're the ones with the purple flowers. Uh, I know that there are some in California. 
but the the whole city is like covered in purple. And then once the first big rainstorm hits, all of those blossoms fall to the ground, and it's like purple snow everywhere. And the temperatures are fantastic. And it's a really good time to see the city. That's November? Uh, late October, early November. And the summer then would be The December, summer January, is December, yeah, yeah. Okay. okay Suzanne, thank thanks you for your call. Robert, I've heard that uh, there's quite a lively gay scene in Buenos Aires. Is it a gay-friendly city? It's a very gay-friendly city because uh, Argentina was actually the first country in Latin America to approve gay marriage. Really? Yes. The The actual law first was a local law in Buenos Aires, and then it became a national law in Argentina. And uh, it was approved before any other Latin American country did. So gay travelers are going to enjoy just jumping into the scene down there. I understand Buenos Aires also has one of the largest Jewish communities. They do. It's actually the um, fifth or fourth largest outside of Israel. There's one neighborhood in the city. I mentioned all the different neighborhoods. There's one neighborhood where most of the temples, the synagogues are located, and as well as the businesses. And most of the Jewish people that live in Buenos Aires are involved in the textile trade. So it's not it's nothing strange or or everybody knows uh, from Europe. Uh, that's the kind of thing. So uh, these would be mostly European expect. Jews. Yes, they're so all. So they came over during the difficult times of uh, Holocaust and everything. Uh, actually, even before that, because before. they're usually Ashkenazi Jews, uh-huh. not uh, Sephardic. Okay. And there were pogroms in Russia mm-hmm. uh, in the eighteen late eighteen hundreds. So these would be mostly Eastern European and Russian. Eastern European families. and Russian. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Also, of course, Argentina is very Catholic. Pope Francis is uh, was the Archbishop of Buenos Aires before. There's not a day go by that we don't hear that. Yes, <laughs> uh, we, 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 they love to have an Argentine Pope. Yes, <laughs> yeah. But it's uh, the, do you feel like it's a Catholic country, or or is it kind of like Italy, where everybody is nominally Catholic, but very few people actually go to church? Exactly like Italy. Yeah, because everybody is usually raised Catholic, but uh, actual church uh, Easter going and is Christmas. Yeah. That's All it. right. Now you just flew in. From Buenos Aires all the way to Seattle. Yeah. What's it like flying down there? How, how did you get to... Uh, my route was Buenos Aires to JFK in New York uh-huh. and then straight over to Seattle. So anywhere in the United States go to JFK and then how long is the flight from JFK down there? Um, it's about a 12-hour flight. 12 uh, hours. Uh, Delta, uh, actually their hub in Atlanta, is a great place to leave the U.S. from because there's direct flights from Atlanta to Buenos Aires. Great. Mm. Barbara's on the line in Chicago, Illinois. Barbara, thanks for your call. Thank you. Um, I have a question for you regarding traveling with kids. wondered if you could offer any advice on traveling with a 6-year-old and a 13-year-old. Uh, definitely. Okay, here's the thing. In Buenos Aires, well, Argentines in general are very, uh, they love kids. So you're going to find, and Argentines are very touchy-feely kind of people, and their kids follow the Argentine schedule. So basically you will find kids playing in a soccer field at 11 o'clock at night because that's just right after dinner. So um, people are very uh, in tune to the to the kid lifestyle there, and they love foreign kids as well. So basically things to do with kids in Buenos Aires. The zoo is actually fairly popular with even, even with locals. I always used to do tours in Recoleta Cemetery, and as strange as it may seem, you can really get kids interested in the cemetery about different kinds of history and different kinds of architecture within the cemetery because it's so fascinating. It's like a miniature city of mausoleums, so they kind of get lost and run around, and it's kind of fun. But it's it's all walled, and, and it's uh, really a fascinating place. So And just walking around in plenty of parks and public plazas, so kids love it. Barbara, it sounds like if you've been to Europe a few times and you're ready for something new, Buenos Aires sounds just like... Yeah, I've never been to South America. Yeah, and and Buenos Aires is a great place to start a South American experience because it's something you're a little bit more familiar with if you've been to Europe. Right. Thanks for your call, Barbara, and good luck traveling with your kids. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and as we do every week for an hour, we are exploring the world with the help of expert guides and, and people that can give us a special insight into a place maybe we'd like to know more about. And today we're joined by Robert Wright, Robert's website is writeon.com.ar, W-R-I-G-H-T-O-N.com.ar. For Argentina to learn more about Robert's uh, writing and teaching on Buenos Aires, where he's spent more than a decade as a tour guide. And Jake's on the phone in Rancho Palos Verdes in California. Jake, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you, uh, Rick and Robert. Uh, I'm so excited, Rick, that you're holding a radio show on Buenos Aires. Uh, it turns out me and my wife and a friend are traveling uh, to Buenos Aires in late May. Great. And uh, we try to talk to people that have been there, and one of the things that has seemed to be a recurring theme is that people go down there 
and they seem to end up with some counterfeit money, sometimes making change uh, from a taxi cab driver. I, I actually went to some blogs and saw that in some places people were actually drawing money out of an ATM machine that was counterfeit, which is a little scary. That's a what? very good question, Jake, and, it's, and it's, a, it's a good concern, especially as a traveler. Um, you have to understand that there's this sort of custom or tradition uh, in Argentina of people kind of like do whatever they can get away with. So it is in many ways like Italy, I guess. You know, you, you, you do what you can. So there is a thing of counterfeit money. There's lots of counterfeit money that's in circulation, but there's much less than there used to be even a decade ago. Uh, the idea is basically if you can travel with as much, uh, with as many small bills as you can possibly find and give those to your taxi cab driver, he won't be giving you back any change, so you don't even need to worry about receiving counterfeit money from that. It doesn't happen a lot, but it does happen occasionally. So there's one thing you can be aware of. As far as counterfeit money from ATMs, I take money out of ATMs there a lot and don't usually have that happen. Jake, good luck. Thank you. Thanks for your call. Okay, bye. Robert, how is the inflation then lately in Argentina? We'd rather not mention that, but uh, inflation yearly is 25 to 28 percent. Oh, that, yearly. That sort of demoralizes the, 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 the rock-solid people and, in the society, doesn't it? Because you know that you're going to be paying so much more the next year, mm. and what that also ends up doing is almost forcing you to buy your goods, yeah. uh, get something physical for your money, because your money is not going to be worth much next year. So. You know, there's a huge psychological toll it takes on a community when mm -hmm. they don't think their money is going to be worth as much next year. Definitely. And it's yeah. not good for the long-term economic stability of a society. No, no. Oh, no. man. But as tourists, we can go there and we can stay affordably in safe neighborhoods. Very we much. We can find local guides like you to show us around. Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's just finish with a meal. Take All me right. out to... I'm a tourist. Uh, you want to show me a good time. Where would you take me for dinner and what would we eat? I would take you to the neighborhood of Palermo, which is full of fantastic restaurants. And the best thing would be to eat a meal of Argentine barbecue because the beef in Argentina really does live up to all the, the hype. Argentine food in general is very simple fare. It's not a lot. Of, there's not complex sauces. There's not a lot of fancy so stuff going steak on. And potatoes kind it's of thing. steak. It's French fries. It's mashed potatoes. <laughs> it's all that good stuff that you that everybody likes. So. so if you're a carnivore, you have an advantage. Right. Yeah, vegetarians, good luck. <laughs> but uh, yeah, <laughs> Robert Wright, thank you so much for a, a fun look at what sounds like just a wonderful city far south of our border, Buenos Aires. Thank you, Rick. Have you heard anything lately on Travel with Rick Steves that you'd like to talk to us about? Up next, we're checking back with listeners who contacted us recently at 877-333-7425 and by email at radio at ricksteves.com. You can add to our conversations on Travel with Rick Steves anytime at the listener message board in the radio section at ricksteves.com. You can also email us at radio at ricksteves.com or leave a message at 877-333-RICK. Right now, Let's take a few minutes to check in with listeners who've contacted us recently with comments or concerns about things they've heard on the show. Catherine's calling in from Nashville, Tennessee. Catherine, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Um, well, I think Turkey is a difficult country. And I work in the field of international education. And um, I think why we travel, we travel to understand and to be understood. And Turkey looks modern and Western, but its traditional and religious and historical values sometimes cause us to make big mistakes when we go there. Okay, so Catherine, you're, you're calling in response to the interview I had with Lolly, I think, yes. about visiting villages? Yes, yes. In eastern Turkey. Did we make it sound uh, easier and simpler than you think it would be for a, an American woman venturing through eastern Turkey? Yes, in my opinion, um, I traveled with a group of eight um, educators to Turkey recently, mm -hmm. and we were in Kayseri, Cappadocia. We were, you know, we're in about ten cities. But mm -hmm. the further east we got, the more I feel like that our dress was we were, you know, we were stared at, and that we didn't want how we appeared to come between 
um, any cultural understanding that we could learn. Hmm. So I felt like that one day, uh, one of the one of the members, she wore a, a sleeveless dress, mm-hmm. and it kind of you know was a de- an ordeal the whole day, mm. because when people are staring at you, yes. it's it's not you're not breaking down. You know, you know, that's that's interesting because, uh, you know, I, in my enthusiasm, a lot of times I think I make it sound a little easier and happier than it might really be. And as you go, because I want people to venture out there, but uh, I think you're right. As you go further east in Turkey, you yeah. get into more conservative areas, uh, more more uh, strict and fundamentalist Islamic areas. And even when I was a kid traveling through Turkey with my girlfriend, I remember some days we would leave the hotel and we'd realize we'd get about half a block and we'd realize no, we got to go back, and you've got to put on something more modest because okay. you just—it's hot, but you can't wear that shirt, or we're going to be causing yes. problems wherever we walk. And and this is why they provide us with the cardboard robes at the blue mosque and the headscarves. You know, yeah. they provide us this because they know we're dressing incorrectly. They're trying to teach us their culture by providing, you know, special right. clothing. So would, would your suggestion, Catherine, be if somebody is going to venture, if you go to the tourist areas in Turkey, it's it's really no issue. Mm-mm. But if you're going away from that, especially in the East, are you saying it's just not safe and comfortable for a woman to go there, or women, if they do decide to go there, should be more careful in how they present themselves? I would say probably long sleeve shirt, long sleeve skirt. Yeah. Long skirt. That that would, that would probably make the day go a whole lot easier and, you know, what we're trying to do is break down the cultural stereotypes. But if the clothes cause an issue, and this isn't so for men, you know, it's right. it's really so for women. But as a modern American woman, I mean, I want to wear a tank top, right. but I know I shouldn't. <laughs> well, the same thing's true with modern Turkish women. I've been with modern Turkish women from big cities, and when they get into a conservative town, it's almost like they're making a point. I'm a modern Turkish woman. I can dress like a modern American woman. But the fact is, mm-hmm. every man in town and, and most of the women are staring at them with sort of a gasp, like, oh, you cannot be in public like this. It's right. just inappropriate. And we spent the night in Turkish homes, and that mm-hmm. was fabulous, because then you get a really you know up-close look. But I just think, to me, travel, it's sort of soft diplomacy every time an American goes out there. I mean, Turkey borders, what, Iran, Iraq, and Syria? I mean, you know, we're trying to break down barriers at this time. And anything that we can do that can just say, I understand your culture. Yes, that's We don't have to embrace it. No, but dressing appropriately and acting appropriately, that's a very important uh, travel skill. So thank you very much, Catherine. Okay, Okay, you're welcome. Thank you. And call again if you have any other comments, okay? Okay, Will do. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks, sir. And after we did our interview about the Balkans and how it related to World War I, we got an interesting email from Anna Alexandra and Dusica from Philadelphia. And they wrote to us this. We are Serbian-Americans. We've been in the United States for 15 years. We're writing in response to your World War I in the Balkans radio show. We were displeased with your comparison of Franz Ferdinand and his wife to Prince Charles and Princess Diana. Charles and Diana were symbolic heads of state, unlike Ferdinand and the Habsburgs, who were heads of government. Charles and Diana were celebrities without much influence in foreign politics. Your comparison is inappropriate. You also called Gavrilo Princip a terrorist, which we do not approve of. He was a patriot and a national who fought for sovereignty for his country and against imperialism. Well, Anna, Alexandra, and Dusica from Philadelphia, thank you. Those are very good points, and it's understandable that Serbs, like you, would consider Princep not to be a terrorist, but a freedom fighter, a national hero, a patriot. In fact, when you go to Sarajevo today, you'll find streets named after Princep. But uh, the fact is, he was a, a freedom fighter who was resorting to what we consider terrorist tactics, and they wanted to assassinate a, a visiting head of state or a visiting royal uh, to get their way politically, and what happened was they killed Franz Ferdinand and his wife, and uh, that's considered, uh, from our point of view, a terrorist. But I understand that one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. We Americans had to shoot in from the bushes when we were fighting the Brits. They might have considered us terrorists, and we might have considered our guys to be patriots. Every empire has uh, angry people on their fringes. It's nothing new. They just call them different things. 2,000 years ago, barbarians were upset with the Romans, and the Romans called these people barbarians to belittle them. Uh, the Habsburgs had their terrorists, and they called them anarchists to belittle them. They weren't necessarily uh, crazy people. They just didn't like being ruled by uh, foreign power. Uh, the Serbs, back in the time of uh, uh, when Franz Ferdinand was assassinated by Princep, they were ruled by German-speaking emperors, and they were Serbian-speaking people that didn't feel they had a government that understood or represented them. 
Of course, today, the United States is dealing with terrorists who are outside of our borders and nipping at our heels, as people outside of an empire often do. This is history, this is what we learn, and it's great to get feedback from people who have a different perspective so we can learn from each other as well as from our travels. Thank you, Anna, Alexandra, and Dusika from Philadelphia. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and it's great every once in a while to take a moment and just hear your feedback. I I just love sharing all this travel information with all these great experts and travel writers and so on that join us. And a lot of times we'll say things that you want to give us some feedback on, pro or con. We just want to hear from you. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And Mary's calling in from Live Oaks in Florida. Hi, Mary. Hi. Now, you're calling in response to which interview that we did? Some young lady who uh, wrote a book about RVing across the country. Uh, Christina Nielsen, yes. She was uh, living yeah. in her RV around the country. Yes. Um, I actually am tractor-trailer driving cross-country right now, and I kind of live in, in my RV here, <laughs> built an RV. But uh, back when, uh, a few years ago, I decided that I was going to go on a long sabbatical and take my own pick-em-up truck and get all my camping gear and go cross-country and visit all the places that I could not go when I was driving tractor-trailer. So you tented uh, around the country then? Oh, yes. uh, As a matter of fact, when I was young, six years old, I uh, was... Sick. I became I became sick with rheumatic fever, and I remember the doctor telling my parents that I was going to be blind by the time I'm 21 years old, and that I probably wouldn't have a long life. And that scared me at six years old, and that stayed with me. So when I was 19, I took off, and I never stopped. <laughs> and you're still and, going, uh, and you're a little older than 19 now, and you're still seeing the world. Well, I'll be 61 here in a couple of weeks. Good for you. What a what an indomitable spirit. I do. I have a lot of courage and determination that I was going to go see everything that I could possibly go see. Well, I'm glad that and, our interviews, like we did with Christina Nielsen there, can inspire people to get out. And whether you're traveling around the world or just around the state, to um, you know, get out of your comfort zone and, and um, accelerate their lives by traveling. Yes, and I highly recommend it. And uh, the way that I always travel is just with a tent. I don't want to do the RV because for me, I'm more, I'm frugal. I I would like to, I I don't even want to stay in campgrounds if I can help it. I will look for wilderness areas to stay in. And that way there, there's no cost. And the reason I have the pick-em-up truck is because I can carry my water with me, my purifier. Okay, (laughs) so you, you tossed your camp gear in the back of your truck and you just hit the road. That's correct. That's All correct. Right. And, um, Where's your favorite place to pitch a tent? Oh, you know, my favorite place in all the places that I have been to was the Arches National Park. Oh, I yeah. just fell in love with the Arches. Oh, oh my gosh, that was I had that was that was the ultimate. I can just picture you stepping out of your tent in the morning at the Arches and stretching high and just thinking, ah, life is good. Life is good. Right. As a matter of fact, there was a place in uh, New Mexico when I was there. It was uh, called El Moro. Um, I don't know. Many people have not heard of El Moro, but it's a land of fire and ice, and there's a cauldron, extinct volcano there, and there's actually um, ice underneath the volcano where there's caves of ice down there, a very fascinating area. There's a wilderness area there, and I ended up camping in that wilderness area by myself. And I spent my birthday there a couple of years ago under the full moon. It was really a scary time because there was nobody else around. I had to drive so far back in the woods to get there. And when I came out, back out into civilization, I heard that uh, there were four bear taken out of there uh, previously, like a, a couple of weeks before that. There were wolves that, that were spotted there. There was a there was a panther spotted in that same area. And thank, and God was so good. <laughs> I think you have a protecting angel or something like that. So you can inspire a lot of uh, young people with a, have an attitude that you have about get out there and sleep under the stars and uh, embrace life. Oh. Mary from Live Oaks, Florida, thanks for your call. Well, you're very welcome, Ray. Okay, thank so you. Bye now. Bye-bye. We're checking in with listeners like you right now, people who've contacted us by phone at 877-333-7425 or emailed us at radio at ricksteves.com 
to talk a little more about things they've heard on recent editions of Travel with Rick Steves. And Jerry is calling in from Reelsville in Indiana. Jerry, thanks for your call. Yes, uh, Rick. In 2011, we went on a Mediterranean cruise and docked at the uh, country of Monaco. Uh And as we got off the ship, we were met by a little trolley called Hop On, Hop Off. Oh, yeah. And you paid $5 for earplugs and... When you got on the trolley, you plugged them into a little speaker system, and it gave you information about where you were going. A little choo-choo train, yeah, and it's a hop-on, hop-off, and you've got the uh, tape-recorded narration. You can listen to it in 10 different languages. If it's boring, you can hear it in in Korean if you want to. Yes, (laughs) and you hop off anytime you want to see something. I like that, because when you get off the ship... come along in 20 minutes and pick you up and take you... So when you get off the ship there, it's a little bit of a hike to get to the Jacques Cousteau Museum, but you can ride that hop-on, hop-off choo-choo and get off and see see the great aquarium. That's what we did. What do you think about that aquarium? Oh, magnificent. It is amazing, the isn't it? huge plastic octopus when you first go in all over the ceiling and coming down the walls. <laughs> oh, I, you know, it's, it befits Jacques Gusteau. I mean, that's it who it's named. Sure does. It sure does. Yeah. You go into that aquarium and it just feels like you're introduced to the wonderland of all that life underwater. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, he had the stuffed uh, Mediterranean penguin yeah, on Medi- display. No. It was about 15 inches high and cute as a button. Cute as a button, those Mediterranean penguins. <laughs> <laughs> and then you can hop back on that uh, little choo-choo train and you can go over to the casino and you can go up to the viewpoint and you can see the changing of the guard. It's like a little toy soldier changing of the guard there in Monaco, isn't it? Well, yes, and you go right through the royal grounds. Yeah. And they told about how the custom used to be in Monaco, uh, duck hunting. And everybody got out and shot ducks. Probably no more ducks. Exactly. That's the downside of that. That's the downside of that. But you Princess know that Grace told uh, Prince Rainier yeah. that that was just terrible and they should stop that and protect the ducks. And so Prince Rainier did. Uh-huh. And now the royal uh, yard is of ducks. <laughs> oh, well, that's the nice thing about a, a situation where you got a, a prince and a princess. They can they can save the ducks. Right. Now, when you are cruising, it is a beautiful thing. The, the ship docks right there in the town, and then the next day, yeah. you're right there in Villefranche, or you're going right there to Naples, or right there to Barcelona. I just love that. And then you've got all of these little hop-on, hop-off uh, vehicles where you can just uh, hop on and hop off all the way through the town and get back in time for dinner on the ship. And learn all about everything. That's right. Hey, Jerry, thanks for your call. Thank you. Call again sometime. Happy travels. Bye-bye. We got an email from Marilyn in Columbus, Ohio. After hearing our interview uh, about fjord country in Norway, she writes, I was horrified to hear you say on the radio that Alessund, Norway, is a forgettable city. Absolutely not. It's one of the 13 great Art Nouveau architecture cities in Europe and one of the gems of the Art Nouveau movement of 100 years ago. I made a special trip there just to see the architecture, and it was breathtaking. Okay, Marilyn, you're right. It is a great city from an architectural point of view. Uh, In fact, I was very struck by the architecture there also, Funny thing is, not funny thing is, tragic thing is, uh, 100 years ago or 115 years ago or so, it was burnt down. I believe the um, Germans loved to come up there for their vacations, and they gathered some money together and helped little Norway rebuild the town of Alessund, and they rebuilt the whole town in uniform Art Nouveau style. So it is a uniquely Art Nouveau town, and in that regard, it is certainly unforgettable rather than, as I put it, forgettable. In fact, there's a famous viewpoint from the mountains above Allison that you look down and you see the beautiful Art Nouveau town, all this uniform architecture because it's all rebuilt in the same year, and then you've got island after island after island reaching out to finally the open sea, and it's one of the great experiences in Norway is to stand on that hilltop overlooking the town of Allison, A-L-E-S-U-N-D, and uh, if you're Maryland and if you're into Art Nouveau, well, then you're marveling at a very memorable city rather than, as I wrongly put it, a forgettable city. That's Allison, and that's Marilyn's feedback from Columbus, Ohio. Sandra's calling in from Long Island in New York. Hi, Sandra. Hi, Rick. Oh, what a pleasure to speak to you. Oh, thank great. you. Oh, that's great. It's nice uh, to be And I think I might have a little tip for some of the ladies that, uh, that drive. Okay. Um, my first trip to Europe was back in 1967. I was 
in my 20s. Mm-hmm. And uh, I studied all the, the maps and the, the signage, so I would be okay, you know, going around. And we landed in uh, Italy first, and then into Switzerland, and then we flew over to England, which I, which really had me worried because I didn't know if I could remember to stay on the left side of the road. <laughs> That's right. There'd be no adjustment in all those other countries, but as soon as you get to England, no, you've got to remember. <laughs> so, so what I did, and I tell everyone that I know since then, I've told them when they're going to drive in, in the British Isles, you know, I wear the biggest, clunkiest bracelet I can find on my left wrist, and hopefully that reminds me to stay over there. <laughs> Now, there's a clever idea. I've never encountered that, but that's that's a good one. Oh, I've been doing it for years. I went back and forth to Europe for the... Uh, well, it was much cheaper back then. Last time was 2004. You know, Sandra, after driving in Britain for a couple of weeks, I, I actually get so used to it that when I get home, I'd have to put the bracelet on my right-hand wrist. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know when I back out of the driveway, I have to think twice of which side of the road to get on? Isn't that a wonderful thing? <laughs> You just got to be in a real humble mood when you're in Britain because I always find if you're in a near head-on collision, I go, oh, I must be on the wrong side of the road. And I, I scoot back over. I, I, well, my cousin was, was, well, he was born in the States but raised there, and he still forgets which side of the street to <laughs> stay on. A lot of people are very nervous about driving in Britain, but I always say if you pick up the car, don't pick it up in downtown London because then you're dealing with all this horrendous traffic. Mm. Pick it up at the no, airport or in a small town. Normally, pick it up right town. at the airport. Yeah, pick it up at the airport. Then you're already in the countryside. And, and later uh, on, when I when I went with my uh, husband, he looks at me and says, I'm not driving here. I said, that's okay. <laughs> I'm used to it. <laughs> Good for you. All right. Well, I just think it's nice that when you're in a country where, that, where they drive on the left-hand side of the road, that you have a car designed to drive on the left-hand side of the yes. road. Yes. I love shifting while, with my left hand, too. I think it's wonderful. <laughs> every once in a while, you see a car on the continent from Britain, and the wheel's on the wrong side, and mm-hmm. I just think that would be really scary. So... Uh, that's why I love to watch all the English mystery shows on PBS, because I could see them driving on their right side of the road. <laughs> and, they, and they're not wearing those bracelets. <laughs> all right, Sandra, thanks for your call, and happy Great travels. Great talking to you. I okay. love your shows. Thanks. Bye now. Bye now. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, with Sarah McCormick and Isaac kaplan Wilner. You too can be a caller on the show. There's a link on the radio page at ricksteves.com to send us your email address so that we can notify you of our next recording sessions and topics. Join us again next week for more travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick's tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Spain, Portugal, and beyond, one small group at a time. This year, we're featuring tours of Barcelona and Madrid, the best of Spain, the Basque Country, and the heart of Portugal. For a free catalogue and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.